It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 104, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Mike Brownback farms at Spiral Path Farm in South Central Pennsylvania with his wife, Tara, and sons, Will and Lucas. Spiral Path farms over 70 acres on more than 300 acres of land that they own, serving two farmer's markets and a 2,000-member CSA and a substantial wholesale business with Wegmans Grocery Store. They farm all of their acres organically, and they've been certified organic since 1994. Mike shares the recent history of Spiral Path Farm and the return of his sons to the operation. We talk about how they've come back to the farm and how Mike and Tara have integrated them into the operation, including the unconventional details of how they keep the communication channels open and everyone headed in the right direction. Mike also shares how he, Tara, and his sons have divided up the responsibilities for managing employees and the guiding philosophy and daily actions that have helped them to retain several employees for over a decade. We dig into the production side of the farming operation, too. Mike digs into his strategies for growing nutrient-dense, flavorful foods, including the nuts and bolts of the composting and cover cropping techniques that work together on the farm to build carbon and soil life. We also discuss farming on the contours, how they harvest and make use of most of the water that falls on the farm, and their approach to salad mix production and large-scale season extension. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com and by Small Farm Central, providers of Member Assembler CSA management software. Member Assembler has the flexibility to serve the needs of the myriad of farmers business models, as well as serving non-traditional local food subscriptions like meat, fish, dairy, and fruit CSAs and CSFs, smallfarmcentral.com. And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm, gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service, bcsamerica.com. Mike Brownback, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hey, thanks, Chris. Good to be here. Thank you. I'm so glad you could join us today. I'd like to start off by having you give us the lay of the land there at Spiral Path Farm. Okay. Well, uh, I used to be able to say my wife and I own Spiral Path Farm, but as of uh, the end of uh, the previous year, that's not true anymore. Uh, we Spiral Path Farm as a business is uh, run by my wife, Tara, myself, our sons, Will and Lucas. And in uh, late 2016, uh, my son Will and his wife Deirdre and family have actually bought the physical property that was our original farmstead. And uh, we are still principals in the business, but uh, we're looking the next generation to, to keep everything going. Wow, that's really great. That, and, that, and not so common on a vegetable farm. It's amazing. Uh, we never really, uh, of course, we always, you always hope your children uh, think enough to stick around. Uh, both our sons went out and uh, worked in in the industry and in the world, and uh, they both decided they wanted to come back. And it was uh, a joyous surprise for both uh, myself and my wife, Tara. Now, Spiral Path Farm is located in South Central Pennsylvania, right? Yes, uh, we're located in Perry County. That's roughly a uh, an hour due uh, northwest of the capital city of Harrisburg. And you guys farm a whole lot of acres for a vegetable farm. 
Oh, that's that's a matter, always a matter of opinion. I mean, if we go down to Florida or we go out to California, we're just the little guys. Around here, we're looked at as somewhat of a large farm. We we have roughly 300 acres, but to be realistic, out of that 300 acres, we're farming a, a close to 70 right now, and we'll have another 40 come certifi- be certifiable by next year. So we are a farm that is growing uh, due to due to the participation of family members, but we've basically uh, kept our gardening principles intact as as we like to look at it. Where are you selling your produce? Well, we when we started uh, to to grow produce, uh, particularly certified organic produce, back in the uh, early '90s, we were previously actually farrow to finish hog operation. We started off with the uh, with Spiral Path Farm, and it wasn't named uh, uh, in the early days. But we bought our farm in 1978. We uh, have been farming until the 90s with a farrow to finish hog operation, growing basically corn, soybeans, small grains, a lot of hay crops. And we uh, started reading Acres USA, and that really saved us. I mean, we were just about went broke when uh, interest rates hit 18% there in the uh, early 80s, late 70s. And uh, so as of now, when we started, uh, and I say now as though this, uh, the 90s is recent history, we started, uh, we started a CSA pretty much right from the get-go. We had uh, been selling at the local uh, farmer's market in Harrisburg, but we were fort- fortunate enough that we kept a mailing list, and we had members talk about CSA. We had gone to the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture Conference that's held in uh, State College every year, and we were hearing about this community-supported agriculture, and uh, we were naive enough to think that it looked good, and we bid in, and we've actually been uh, doing the CSA ever since. In addition to that, we've always sold some produce on the wholesale market and uh, some actually at farmer's markets. And how many CSA shares are you guys servicing now? Well, our CSA, our CSA business has grown. We started with about uh, 22 members back in the early 90s. It has been as high as uh, 2,400 members. Right now, it's right around 2,000 members. You know, I think the CSA concept has uh run its course in our area as far as being maxed out, especially with more and more growers getting involved. But we're quite happy and quite uh, satisfied with uh, with that number and have uh, grown to be able to uh, to service that many customers. And with the CSA like that, you guys are packing boxes, right, for delivery? Exactly, Chris. We're we're packing boxes. We we have kept the uh, generic box concept. Where we live in Perry County, it's so rural that for us to be able to market right in our little vicinity is out of the question. We might have uh, 20 members that pick up at our farm, and the other uh, 1,980 or so are delivered to. So our our philosophy is basically. You pack your CSA box like it's going to your mother-in-law. You don't have any idea who's pick, who's getting that box. So you have to you have to look at the concept as this, as if you have to be on your best every time. I always I always told people to pack up for my mom, but um, 
Maybe I should have done the mother-in-law. That would might have been a little bit uh, even fussier. Oh, I think both work. I'm glad you. <laughs> I'm glad you see it the same. <laughs> and then, how many farmers markets are you guys doing? Uh, currently, we're doing uh, two farmers markets in the Washington D.C. area, and we also have we also have uh, CSA uh, drop-off sites at those markets, so it works well for us. And for your wholesale sales, what where where are those products going? Well, in our wholesale market, it's been a real adventure. You know, when you first, uh, we first started selling uh, to Tuscarora Organic Growers Cooperative. Uh, the cooperative is uh, about an hour and a half west of us. We're still members of the cooperative, although we don't sell to the cooperative anymore, but it was a great starting place for us to understand packing standards and uniformity and those those type of areas. We started selling uh, to venues like Whole Foods, to Albert's Organics, a lot of the major uh, wholesalers in our area that were selling, uh, that were actually selling to distributors and the retailers. And then about uh, 14 years ago, we started selling uh, to the Wegmans company. And Wegmans has been a real boon to us because they see the industry very similar to how we see it. And uh, it's not, they don't treat us as if they want to uh, be parasitic. In other words, they're not trying to buy for the, for the lowest price. They're looking at the big picture. They want quality and consistency and, uh, and also be able to tell a story about their growers. So Wegmans is a name that out here in the Midwest where, where I'm broadcasting from, we, we hear that. And I think, it always sounds like you all in the Northeast know exactly what you're talking about. Can you tell me a little bit more about Wegmans? Yeah, I, I would love to tell you a little bit more about Wegmans, Chris. Wegmans is a family grocery grocery chain now. I'm going to use the word chain. Uh, they basically started in the Rochester area. Probably, I think they just celebrated 100 years. And it's been a family-run company from the get-go. You can't go buy stock in a, in Wegmans like you can in Whole Foods or some of these other uh, uh, retailers. But they have really focused on uh, meeting the needs of their customers, really trying to identify food uh, trends, making food exciting, and uh, really having the philosophy that I that I that I resonate to, which is, uh, you know, you basically you want to treat your customer as, as well as you can, and it's okay to make a profit, but in the process, you want to hold to your values. And it's my understanding that they've done a lot to support organic farming in your region. Wegmans has, has done uh, well to support not only organic, but even their conventional growers. They've, they were probably one of the first chains to mandate the food safety uh, certification, which sounds so onerous if you haven't done it. But I mean, they actually supported all the growers to get to get the uh, GAP or Harmonize uh, GAP certified, and they even send us a check every year to help defray the costs. So I mean, just instances like that, uh, they'll they are supportive. Uh, those it's it's so important for an economy, and I, I mean I really look at what I call the new economy is for the participants. 
So if I'm selling directly to my customer, then it behooves my integrity exactly to my customer. But if I'm selling to an intermediary who's selling to a customer, the new economy has to take into account that it has to be win-win all the way down the line, and 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 it cannot be parasitic. And I keep using the term parasitic. Parasitic to me is when I want to create a race to the bottom. I want to pull pull the plug on prices. I want to I want to bleed my suppliers as much as I can. That there's no future in that. You know, that's to me nothing made me happier than to be able to say no to other buyers because I had found a better way to market. And uh, it was, it was a, a joy for us and it really ended years of frustration. And is Wegmans your only wholesale buyer these days? Yes. Wegmans is our only buyer and it's somewhat of a, you could say, well, geez, Mike, you're putting your eggs in one basket. And I totally realized that. And it's funny, you know, I, uh, my wife and I had uh, had a meal with uh, Danny and Stanzi Wegman, and uh, you know I I've talked to their top brass, and and you know I said, hey Danny, you know I'm somewhat in a precarious position here. I didn't say it that way. I said it as uh, delicately as possible, and Danny obviously understood exactly what I said. And his comeback was, if you'd like something in writing. And I, I said, Danny, your your handshake is good enough for me because I just, I'm of the mind if I have to go, you know, it's funny. I just got back from vacation and, you know, we rented bikes. We were down in Florida. We rented bikes and, you know, you want to you stop with a bike and they got locks. And, you know, someone looked at me. I didn't lock my bike. And they said, boy, you're really taking a lot of risk. I said, well, you know, I said, if somebody steals a bike. If I gotta lock my doors, I'm not coming back. I don't want to live somewhere where I gotta worry about all these, all these things. Uh, and it's just a basic internal philosophy that we have. And if we trust you, we trust you. Can you tell me a little bit about how those sales break out between the CSA and the the farmers markets and and the wholesale sales? Well, Chris, it's been a real, it's been a real evolving process. And there, there were years probably, oh, within the last, as recently as 10 years ago, our CSA was, when it was at 2,400 members, was our, was our leader in sales. Our uh, farmer's market's always been a very small percentage. And the uh, wholesale has, has fluctuated at the at current time, it's roughly twice, it's over twice of what our CSA sales are. So it's, it's uh, that opportunity in light of the uh, somewhat saturated CSA market has been a real benefit to us. And really, when you're working with a retailer, the real way to work with a retailer is you sit down at least once a year you go over sales and you see what is in oversupply. Where did you have opportunity that you might not have filled? Also, there should be some, there should be some transparency about what that uh, retailer is paying for produce from another point. So if they're, if they're bringing in California produce, what are they paying for that? And what's their profit margin? 
And if you have a really good relationship, they're not exactly telling you what you can charge, but they're all but telling you. And so that's been a tremendous asset to us as far as being able to price, but also be able to increase sales because we get to see what is your usage in a week. Right. So you really have the, it gives you the tools you need to know what your potential sales look like. Exactly. And that's, I mean, you know, it's always been said in the produce business, uh, sell it before you grow it. Well, you know, anyone starting out in the produce business knows that sounds really good. And I'm going to go talk to a chef. You know, we started selling to chefs or small places like that. And they're like, oh, great, great. You know, bring it in as soon as you got it. Well, someone always wants to see what you can do before they're going to buy it. So it's somewhat, I think, of a of a, a cruel joke to say, you know, have it sold before you grow it. But as you're paying your dues and have been in the in the business for a while, that is definitely works very well if you have a client that will commit to buying. But the, at the same end, I can't grow more of any item than a, than a retailer can use or else I'm putting them in a position that's unfavorable for them. So it's a, it's a very delicate dance and having a CSA and a wholesale outlet works really well for us because we can, we can manage uh, oversupply a lot better that way. Now what we always, we always put our CSA first and Wegmans doesn't like to hear that, but our comeback is we're paid up front. You know, we have to, so, but yeah, having that flexibility, you know, as long as you're filling those boxes, I assume to make some changes, maybe in what the contents look like from week to week, if, you know, depending on how things are going in, in the different marketplaces. Well, absolutely. And uh, a case in point is we, we grew, we started, uh, we started growing these mini uh, snack pep- peppers and uh, they were three colors and there was one color, the orange little mini pepper in particular, where they were just fantastic. And we always test, we always, we always know what to grow for the future by growing for our CSA. Our CSA is really our real taste test. And if we can get something that the CSA likes and we have a lot of members like it, we have a very good chance of succeeding with that in, in the selling it to a retailer. And so it's a way that you can also help your retailers keep an eye on trends as well or, or identify opportunities that maybe they didn't even know existed. That's absolutely correct. And that is the, that is the, the value of a working partnership. We'll take something and say, Hey, taste this. And you'd be surprised, uh, if you're really trying to take care of your customers all the way down the line and you know, uh, the listeners that have uh, the farmer's markets and the CSA know, know how important taste is. But when you introduce that concept at, at the retail end, it, it provides opportunity for those of us that are putting the effort in to select the proper, the proper crops and also treat our soil in such a way that we are enhancing flavor. So tell me about that, because I know that's something that you really emphasize on your farm is is nutrient dense food. But I'm assuming when you say, you know, treating your soil in a way that emphasizes flavor, that those are two things that go hand in hand. I would sure I would sure like to think so. And I, and it, we've I've been really fortunate that by sheer chance, I was introduced to Acres USA back, you know, as early as 1980. And 
even when we weren't farming in an, in a total organic way, we were making strides to improve in our soil. And, you know, it's been for me, you know, I'm in my sixties now, so I've been doing this for a long time. And it seems like the some at some viewpoint, it seems like progress in soil improvement is incremental, but I would have to tell you that in the last 10 years, we've really come a long way. And I think the, uh, this focus on cover crops that has just burgeoned, I mean, in our state of Pennsylvania, the cover crop revolution extends far beyond uh, organic growers or vegetable growers. And it is, you can come in our state in the wintertime and you see a lot of green. If there's not snow on the ground, it, there's a lot more green than you ever saw. So, I mean, that's a, that's a basis. Uh, one of the other uh, key things we did is we, we make our own compost. And we make our compost with about 40 acres of fallow ground on our farm that is not conducive to growing vegetables. We mow it once a year late, either late August or in September, and we use that as the foundation for our compost. So we actually make our own compost on farm. And one of the other reasons that we do that, Chris, is I really do not want to support factory farming, particularly in the animal concept. And I, I kind of cringe when I hear growers say they're putting poultry manure on and, you know, uh, all these different ingredients that come from a, what I call a failed agriculture. I do not want them to be the inputs to improve my soil. And I kind of question if they even can improve your soil. I hear stories of people putting large amounts of, of some of these products on and some of them contain GMOs or this and that. And, you know, they say they can't detect GMOs out of manure like that, but philosophically, I do not want to support that industry. So I don't mean to jump negative about it, but I think making the compost and then taking, taking tests, taking soil tests and and we follow pretty much an all brick method of balancing our cations. You know, if we're if we're short on calcium, which incidentally we haven't really had to apply calcium for over 20 some years, it seems like my neighbors are always putting calcium on because they apply uh, synthetic nitrogen. But uh, you know, there's areas of the country where you need nitrogen. We we're in an area where we need potash. So we look for a source of potash that we think comes from a sustainable source, and we go with that. So you said you have about 40 acres of ground that you're using uh, to create your compost, and you're feeding 70 acres with that. Are you importing organic matter in other ways to your farm? We are not importing organic matter into our farm in other ways. It's really the we're only making enough compost to probably put on two ton to the acre. We do not consider compost a nutrient. We consider compost a a life source. So in other words, I'm looking to make the absolute best compost I can. And what we do is we use our uh, packing house waste. We, we pile that during the season when we have an excess amount. We'll start blending that into our chop. And I use a skid loader bucket and build a big pile, a big static pile. So I'll blend uh, certain parts 
I put maybe nine buckets full of uh, of this brown chop that we've harvested, and it has a little green when you first harvest it. I'll put just a little bit of that uh, vegetable waste. I'll put on some basalt dust, which is a which is a very uh, high silica content dust. It's uh, considered paramagnetic. It's very important in uh, biodynamic agriculture. We uh, will even put uh, we put soil on. We'll put really uh, fine clay that we if we have it around. If not, we'll use some topsoil that we'll get off the farm. We'll blend that in, and then we'll put a little bit, like 10% of biochar. And the biochar has been phenomenal of what it does to compost. We'll push that all together, and it blends as you push it, because we'll only cut a little bit at a, at a time up on a pile. We'll let that static compost, and it'll get up to about, oh, 140 degrees easy. Then we'll use that pile as the mother pile and any time we make compost, we'll start, we'll lay the nine buckets of the chop in a line, just like you would make conventional compost pile with a, with a long windrow. And then we'll add maybe three buckets of that compost from the mother pile back on that spread out. Then we'll add those other ingredients. We'll add the, the, a little bit of the packing house waste. We'll add some clay soil. We'll add the basalt dust. We'll add the biochar again, then push it all and push it that it blends as we push it and just keep building that big static pile that that becomes the mother pile. Then once a week, I'll take uh, a dump truck load of that pile. I'll take it down to my worm shed. And uh, in the worm shed, we call it, I have a, uh, a 10,000 gallon an old fuel tank that we actually mounted on tractor trailer axles. It's a little hard to describe without seeing it, but it actually, we have it running on a uh, two horsepower motor and it'll tumble this compost. It's kind of, it actually, I saw some, I saw a video of it online when there I was getting go. ready for the interview. And I would say it's kind of like a big barrel washer almost. It's exactly like a giant barrel washer and it doesn't have any baffles in it. It goes in at one end comes out the other end and it comes out and it looks finished when it comes out, but it's not finished. We static pile it then, let it reheat, but that once it reheats, it won't go above 140 degrees, but it will not oxidize. And uh, the listeners know that if you make a compost pile and you have all this white inside there, it's typically oxidizing. It will not oxidize after that. So what we do is let it let it set, we'll have to haul it out and put it in piles. Then we'll cover it with the compost covers and uh, some of it will actually screen and we'll screen it because we have rocks or this and that that get in it and uh, what we screened fresh will feed to our worms and that's uh, another ingredient that, we, that we'll make out of the, the compost. So you're doing vermicomposting on the farm, I assume for your own use, you're not selling the vermicompost, are you? No, no, we're not. We're not really interested in selling the the vermicompost. We use it. We use the most of our vermicompost to make our potting soils, and potting soils just really do great. Particularly if uh, when we make the the vermicompost, we're putting this this green compost on the top. We have a top down system that we harvest underneath. Then we'll put something like uh, azomite on there. We use some. Uh, we use some uh, uh, clay, du- real fine clay dust, 
and uh, we let that run run through. We you know we'll keep it the right moisture for the worms, and uh, that that really works great in potting soil blends. And you guys are making your own potting soil there on the farm, then? Yeah, Chris, we've been making our own potting soil from the get go. I, I think it's. I think it's the old pig farmer in me. I'm used to grinding feed and, you know, making those kind of things ourselves. And we've just kind of continued on making the potting soil. And uh, we try to make as much of of those kind of items as we can ourselves. Obviously, though, with a huge amount of care going into the ingredients that you're putting into them. And what you've described is is I, I haven't heard of a farm doing a composting operation quite like what you're doing. Well, it's interesting. I would have to say that one of my goals, and this is, I can look back in the early 70s when I actually started to garden with my grandmother, you know, and I'm reading Organic Gardening by Rodale, and, you know, this concept of compost was so, I was quite taken with it. And when I had the pigs, I could never make good compost. Pig manure was so wet, I just didn't have a knack. And it seems like all of a sudden, I can make compost and it's sort of meditative to me. I get up in the morning and I used to go do the chores and feed the pigs and this and that. I'll go over to the farm and I, I, I spend maybe 20 minutes a day. I'll dump the garbage. You know, the owner of the company dumps the garbage and makes the compost. And I, I love doing it because I know it is the backbone of our fertility that along with the cover crops. And I would have to say, if someone said, someone said to me, you can only do only one thing for soil fertility, the cover crops would be my first preference and the compost number two. That's really interesting to me. So tell me about how you're integrating the cover crops into your vegetable operation. Okay, I'd love to. We, it's it's funny. We're friends with uh, Klaus and Mary Hal Martin. They're uh, uh, grain growers up in uh, Penyan, New York, and we get together. We see them at conferences here and there. And you know, and, and Klaus, he said, he said, you're doing compost, yeah. He said, well, wh- when are you applying it? I I said. And this was some years back. I said, well, I'm putting it on before, you know, sort of pre-plant when we plow down. He said, he said, try putting it on your cover crops. And I thought about it and I realized, yeah, I'm trying to increase biomass. So what we do is we take that very high quality compost and we go out in the spring after the ground's thawed. Of course, this January, the ground is thawed, but after after the cover crops come back out of dormancy and they're starting to actively grow to the extent that they're covering the, they're covering the ground is what I like them to do. I like them to cover the ground, so I'll go out there and I use like an old, uh, we have an old uh, Stolzfus wet lime buggy that we use that we can put on the two-ton per acre with that, with that and spread it with two passes on our 40-foot wide fields. And we want it that it'll cover that, it'll cover the cover crops so the sun will not oxidize. The sun will not work on that, uh, on that compost. We want it to get in. Now, obviously, you're going to get some that the sun's going to shine on. But the, the goal is that those microbes, those fungi, your bacteria, you want those to, to be able to be assimilated in the soil. And if you have any kind of worm population or even the microbes themselves, they'll come up out of the soil, they'll work that down. And next thing you'll look at your 
cover crop and you'll think, geez, the last time I looked at this, say I had, uh, say my cover crop was, uh, was rye and hairy vetch, what you'll see is that rye becomes less dominant and your legume, the legume component becomes more and more vigorous. And you think to yourself, geez, how could this compost possibly do this? And somehow, by having a compost and not looking at it, I'm not putting, I'm not trying to add nitrogen to my soil. I'm trying to add in components that stimulate the bacteria, the rhizobacter that I'm trying to stimulate the nitrogen fixation. And uh, it, I have to say it wasn't intentional, but it's something that I discovered, I realized, and uh, I, I take pictures of it. I'm, I'm so amazed. At, in the fall, it's grass-dominated because really in the fall, you're actually gathering those nutrients that were left in your soil from your previous crop as far as the nitrogen goes. But then it's spring wake-up. It's slowly shifting over, and you use your compost to stimulate the, the, the nitrogen component of your soil, and it works like a charm. The other thing it does is increases your biomass so that when you plow this under or you work it in the ground, you have less weeds because you're not putting this on pre-plant with something that can stimulate weeds. Now, the higher quality composts are not supposed to stimulate weeds, but timing is everything. And I think putting that on earlier is, is definitely helps with reduction in weeds. Are you rotating your cover crops with your vegetables, or is it something that you're doing as a, as a follow-on crop and, and growing vegetables on every acre every year? We, we attempt to get cover crops on as, as much of our ground as we possibly can. Uh, the exception would be some of the fields that we have in plastic, some of our late, uh, some of our late salad crops that are on plastic. But what we really, the system that we really like is we like to come in, if we, if we come in early, and early for us is the end of August, beginning of September, we like uh, to first start out growing uh, something like uh, like oats and a legume. It could be uh, sun hemp, could be peas. It could be, uh, oh, there's a new one I'm, that I've, I'm, if I could just remember what it was, it was like uh, some kind of chickpea that, uh, that we really like and it, they winter kill. So we want our, we want our first cover crops are going into crops that we intentionally seed to winter kill. That way in the spring, you know, I have so many growers say to me, Mike, you know, I got these onion maggots. And I said, Oh, Oh, you plowed under a green cover crop. Uh, yeah. How'd you know? Well, you know, something like maggots loves decay. So you want to, in the spring, if you're putting in crops that are sensitive to uh, to maggots, you want to reduce your decay. So you want to have it pre-decayed by something that intentionally winter kills. The other the other type of uh, cover crop scenario that we do, we grow a lot of brassicas in the fall, and we, we grow them on bare ground. We grow those on bare ground because at last cultivation, we overseed, and we like to overseed with a blend of crimson clover, a little bit of hairy vetch, 
and either rye or triticale. Triticale we sort of like. We're sort of starting to like. It's a little less vigorous and lets our legumes become a little more dominant. That's a crop, and we love to let those, we love to harvest those brassicas in a way that we never harvest the top. Now, once in a while, we'll come in and we might need them, you know, need the top. But if we can harvest just leaves and leave the leave the critical growing point, stay alive, and they make it through the winter, a winter like this, they will make it in the spring. And what happens is we let that grow out. We'll let those crops grow out. We want those brassicas to flower. We want every bit of biodiversity that we can generate. We want to see every kind of bee in there, any kind of uh, biocontrol. We found that those brassicas, and we do not know why, in the spring when they, t- when they start taking off again, they do not attract the flea beetle. What is it about these overwintered brassicas that we that on our farm we have a reduction in flea beetle? We we sort of like that, and we 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 know that it's a that becomes a not quite shoulder tall, but very very tall crop. We'll flail chop that as we need fields, and then we'll put those in particularly in tomatoes and crops like that that are heavy feeders. Then in the then the crops that we have that are uh, typically solanaceous crops like your tomatoes, your peppers, your eggplants. We'll typically take those out in September, October. It's getting a little bit late uh, to to do anything but hairy vetch. But we've we use the rye, the hairy vetch, and we've been adding the crimson in. And we found that the more diversity in these cover crop blends. Uh, the better that they, particularly the crimson clover, is more likely to survive because you thin the seed down. I think we had been overseeding it, and we'd get some smothering. Not really winter kill, but actual smothering. That's really interesting that, that I, you say you get the more diversity in the mix, you get better survival. Oh yeah, that's been that's been documented, and it's been documented in drought and in and in uh, cold. Now, you guys aren't farming a whole lot of what I would think of as traditional vegetable land. You're you're on a lot of hillsides, right? Chris, we're definitely on hillsides. We're, we are definitely on ground that uh, is not – let's face it. Let's face it. The Our generation of farmers that, that did not inherit farms, we had to get what we could. And by uh, serendipity, by the grace of God, by whatever – the ground that we got, there was enough on it that it it is productive vegetable ground, even though it's not ideal, even though it's stony, even though it has slope, even though it has clay, it uh, it works for us. So it behooves us to be real stewards of the land and to do everything that we can to minimize erosion. And we learned about that. I learned about that the first year I farmed back in 1978. And I plowed up a bunch of ground, and I hadn't a clue what erosion was. I didn't know any of this stuff. I learned it all the hard way, and I think really at the end of the day we all do. And uh, we have land that's challenging, and, uh, you know, uh, I I love the earth. I love the land, and the last thing I want to do is put it in a position that it it doesn't uh, prosper. So tell me about some of the things that you're doing for erosion control, because I think that's a real challenge for a lot of farmers, because like you said, we we have to take what we can get. And especially for vegetables, you're dealing with a lot of soil exposure over the course of a season. 
We really are, particularly when you're laying plastic and you have to, we, I mean, we've, we even, even in the, in the late season, which we'll call our uh, September, October, we'll actually get somebody to walk seed, oat seed or, or rye seed in between the plastic just to get it to, to grow. So we have cover over the winter. And, uh, when we put our strawberries out, we, we put strawberries on plastic in, uh, early August, we actually grow oats between there, and it does look like a little bit of an eyesore. Uh, we weed out the holes, you know, so the strawberries are clean, but there's there's uh, oats growing, you know, as tall as oats get, right between the plastic, and uh, we try to do things like that, but we also farm on the contour. We've done a lot of work with our machinery that we can farm on the contour. For instance, we use... Uh, we use water wheel transplanters, about everybody does, that plants on plastic. We've modified our tractors that we can actually put, we put side shifts on them, that we can actually pull the machine up the hill sideways so we're not crabbing as bad on uh, going around contours. My son, uh, Wills, uh, he got a mechanical engineering degree, so he has some some good insight into that and we've you know done some trial and error work but we we try to stay on these contours uh we also subsoil a lot we probably subsoil more than the average growers do by opportunity so if it's a dry year like last year was a very dry year for us well we subsoil we want infiltration we want to increase that infiltration layer we want to build our topsoil depth uh, if I were a no-till farmer, I would be using more and more uh, tillage radish, uh, the, the daikons. We use some. I'm a little hesitant to go too wild on daikon radish because of all the brassicas we grow. But uh, they work really well as subsoilers also. Uh, and we also have uh, green, green, in other words, sod roadways about every every 40 feet so we try to we try to lay our plastic tight we lay it on five and a half foot centers which is very tight particularly on hills that's why we need uh, machinery that we can actually adjust as we plant where we can actually slide that transplanter up so we're not drifting down the hill and uh, but it allows us to put eight rows in about a 40 uh, about 40 foot field that actually works for our sprayers that we can cover four rows at a time and uh, but it gives us a sod roadway every 40 feet so really we're giving up a lot of acreage farming that way but we feel as if we don't have any option uh, we also have diversions a diversions where you would collect water that would that would run it would run into a, a waterway a sod waterway and then a diversion would collect it and then actually let it outlet we've been uh, we have some ponds that we put in so we want our runoff water to actually go in the ponds uh, I learned about this reading Acres USA, particularly about the uh, key line farming from Australia, where they have such a, a drought, and then they might have a drought deluge cycle, and when they do get the rain, they want it. And since we irrigate our farm out of a well, we find it absolutely imperative that we do everything we can to increase infiltration. Our uh, Our motto is... And it might sound a little greedy, but our motto is, if it falls on us, 
that's our water. We want that water. We don't, we're not trying to get rid of that water. We want it in the ground, infiltrated in, so we can use it because we make a living by that water. So we want to do everything we can to get it to go in, into the, our land, into our aquifer. You mentioned the subsoiling and then the and then the key line concept from Australia. Are you using the the key line or the yeoman's plow for your subsoiling, or are you using a, a more conventional subsoiler? We're we're using a more conventional subsoiler. I did have a lot of interest in that key line plow back when I saw it in the in the eighties, and uh, but I never really got that far. We use a uh, what's called. A, Oh my gosh, it's slipping my mind what it is, but it's we can only pull two two shanks with a, it, it with it's actually called a slit tiller or a slot tiller. So we we have goal, we have aspirations of of uh, starting to do some some slit tillage, which means that you take a deep shank and it has a roller harrow that follows that, so you don't have any clods come up. It keeps the subsoil down in, and it it covers it's on 30 inch centers. So when we plant uh, bare ground crops like our brassicas in the fall, they all go on 30 inch 30 inch centers. So we like to be able to subsoil those points, those area that 30 that 30 inch, and then uh, increase the infiltration that way. But I I should look back into the um and see what's going on with them, see if they have one scale to our size and. Because I know they take a lot less horsepower than what we're we're using. We're running 125 horsepower to pull two of these shanks, and in heavy clay soil, the tractor still grunts even though we subsoil frequently. But we have noticed that doing that has definitely helped us improve the soil. Now you mentioned water as being important to your farm, um, and you're pumping out of a well. I mean, for for 60 or 70 acres, that's not a small amount of water to be applying to keep things growing. Especially, you know, you talked about the drought last year. What are you doing for your irrigation? Okay, our irrigation is. Uh, I'm laughing because I, I. It makes me remember back in 1997. Uh, before that, I think we we had a well pounded out with an old pounder. You know, back in the day, they used to pound wells. They didn't drill them. And somebody pounded one for us, and we got like 28 gallon a minute. We thought, boy, you know, we hit the numbers. Well, it didn't take us long to realize we couldn't go very far with that. So in 1997, I actually hired a hydrogeologist. And uh, this hydrogeologist, he gave me some points where to drill, and we actually were fortunate enough to hit 300 gallon a minute. So our old, uh, our stony, uh, steep limestone soil happened to lay right over top of the uh, Tanalaway aquifer. And uh, so with the 300 gallon a minute, you know, that was the good side. The bad side is now, what do you want to do, buddy? Do you want to get, you willing to go in the debt? What do you want to do with this? And uh, we spent the money and put an underground irrigation system in. uh, And, uh, you know, with our hills, it took six inch pipe just to get it up the hill, you know, so we didn't have too much friction loss. And uh, the the company that put it in for us did a a decent job, but they did an in, inadequate job of wiring. We had electric solenoid valves, which if you want to have an automated system, that's what you need. And it wasn't until probably about seven years ago, my son said enough of this. And we put in what's called a binary system that you only need two wires with decoders. You know, it's the modern world now. And we could run a very sophisticated irrigation system with 300 gallon a minute and service the whole farm. 
And I would really recommend to anyone serious in the produce business that that is using any type of irrigation system to really consider the an automated system. It's a pain in the neck, but I used to be the one that would stay up at night and, you know, fall asleep and then go turn this on or, or this off and all that. And an automated system, it's not without its flaws, but it really, really helps. And with an automated system, it's it's not a set it and forget it sort of a thing. You're still managing and deciding how long to run that water for, when to turn it on, when to turn it off. It's just a matter of programming that into the system, right? Absolutely. And if and you have to really be willing to monitor. And I, I keep telling my son that I keep saying, you know, it's so important that, you know, if you've got this set for uh, one hour, two times a day in dry weather, you're growing cucumbers. And, you know, you got to really you got to be checking that ground and uh, making sure that you're putting not too much and not too little. And one of the challenges we have is we have two distinct soil types. We have an elibur, which is the real stony but very black soil that's well-drained. And then we have a Hagerstown silt loam, which is a fairly heavy limestone clay soil. And the heavier the soil, the more imperative it is not to overwater. And uh, invariably, we we overwater, you know, every year to some extent. And, uh, you know, we're working on our game like everybody else, you know, and that's to fine tune and, and to really get to know what is the, the right amount, the, the, you know, the optimum amount is the goal. You mentioned monitoring the water and how wet the soil is. Are you using fancy tools for that or are you just reaching in and grabbing a handful of soil? <laughs> It's interesting you bring that up because my my son Will's been really wanting to get some kind of gizmos, and I said, "Oh, Will, I fooled around with those, you know, ten years ago, and I never really got far." I I I personally think that it's if you can't feel it, you're. <laughs> I don't know if an instrument's going to help you too much. You should you should learn to know what it is, but it would be great to have the verification of instrumentation. I look at instrumentation as teaching you how to teaching you what your senses should should know. I, I, I hope I'm conveying what I'm trying to say. Oh, I like that. I think that makes complete sense. Like you say, if you want to go out and you, you look at an instrument and it says it's time to water and you feel the soil, that tells you when it's time to water, right? Yeah. And then through that, through that, you should learn that that you can know without the instrument. I guess the advantage with the instrumentation is it does give you the ability to delegate some of that monitoring downwards to somebody who maybe has less skill or less experience, if and when that's necessary. Well, also, what you said about downwards is really important because, you know, my hand's only going in a couple inches and what is going on down there. But one thing that we really find, and this is this is critical to to our success, particularly in these dry years, say we have a crop like uh, like zucchini squash or cucumbers, uh, crops that use a lot of water when they're growing, you know, we have to, you know, you're pumping water to them. Well, the day that they're done, if we can, we like to chop, we like to lift, and we like to get that plastic out, you know, and everybody's tired, but that's what we like to do because we have all that moisture left. And guess what? We're going to go in there. We'll put a little top dress fertilizer on there. We'll work that ground, then we'll plant our brassicas. And I love putting my brassicas in with a water wheel transplanter. We use a water wheel transplanter and we space it that it's 30 inch wide 
But the other thing we do is we put a, a an inner tube over the ponches so that they, if, it's, if they get wet from running the water, the mud doesn't plug everything up. And then we don't water them. There's enough water left in from the ir- previous crop being irrigated that you get a great rooting system. Those crops are going to go down, and we find we have very little flea beetle problems if we follow that. As soon as you start putting water on those little baby crops, especially in a dry year, here come the flea beetles. Ooh, got moisture, got humidity. Let's go get some of that. And uh, so we love to to glean the moisture of a previous crop into those fall crops. I love that that idea of you know being really conscious about about your water and how you're essentially using the leftovers or the wastewater in that case. It's something that wasn't going to go to growing anything that you were going to turn around and sell and actually making use of it. We love it too. We we call it dry land farming, even though it's obviously it's not dry land because we have irrigation up front of it. But it's funny. Uh, I've gotten into a few arguments with the boys about it because it looks like those crops and they would benefit from a little moisture at a certain point, but I like to take it pretty far until we till we put the water on because it's uh there's a certain point where how much how resource intense do we are we are we going to be you know and i mean i know we use plastic we use drip irrigation you know we use we use the these these type of methods and they're they are definitely resource intensive wherever we can conserve i think it behooves us too particularly if we're not negatively impacting our yields well, and I think there's also something to be said for, for, like you pointed out, training those plants, you know, saying, hey, the water's not right here in the root ball. You're going to have to you're going to have to work for it because that actually sets them up to have a bigger root system and to, to be a little bit more robust and able to handle things for themselves rather than just having it spoon fed to them. Well, you're, you're exactly right, Chris. And part, one of the other components to that is timing those transplants that you have the right age transplant and i think we've all you know we've all had some issues with that over the years we really are every year we go over our schedules and we say we we started measuring days in the flat and you know if it's if it's kale and it's in the flat over five weeks I seeded it too early, <laughs> you know, and the, so what I'm trying to say is, you know, you, that stresses that plant, it gets that tight root ball, it takes longer to even get out of that. If you can catch these plants at the right time and and timing, and I know there's weather conditions and everything else happens, but, but in an opportun, opportune is to have that transplant at exactly the right stage of production where it takes off with as little stress as possible. Are you hardening your transplants off before you put them out in the field? We we harden our transplants for the for the early part of the season. So if we're putting lettuce out, like we like to put lettuce out uh, last week of March, first week of April, 
that'll be hardened. Once that lettuce, if that lettuce is going out the end of the May, end of May, it doesn't really need to be hardened. Same with tomatoes and peppers. We want those really hardened the first wave. After that, it really, it, that hardening is not, you don't have the weather and you're only, you can only harden with water. Well, we have irrigation and we're, we're not really going to withhold water. So we want optimum timing is more important. And we found as we've, as our potting soil making has improved, that our transplants take less time to mature. So we we had to really modify our days to, you know, days to being able to pull plugs based on uh, the quality of the potting soil and how fast we could grow a transplant. So Mike, are you, just to pivot back to the irrigation a little bit. Um mm-hmm. or hey, was that a pun intended or not? Oh, that was good, actually, wasn't it? Uh, it was unintended, but, you know, I, I'm a Latin student from way back, so I'll take them whenever I can get them, right? There you go. Okay, so um, are you doing drip on bare soil, or are you guys, you guys have that automated irrigation system working with overhead irrigation as well? There was a time when we were fooling around with the drip on bare soil and burying, burying it, it, and it's turned into such a nightmare uh, trying to plant on the drip and get the depth just so and then pulling it out and getting it wrapped up that we've kind of, we went bare ground. So when when I'm saying we're putting this, putting broccoli out uh, the last week of July after a cucumber crop, it's going to be overheaded typically uh, sometime in September when it's starting to get up to that size. And we have that on the same system that our drip is automated, so it can go on and off uh, automatically. Now, when you do a system like that, particularly if you're using Watergate pipe or aluminum pipes, you got to check them. You can't say, well, it rained, you know, I didn't need to use these pipes for 10 days, and then you're just going to flick the switch and turn it on. Uh, that's a great way to create erosion problems, and we've done that. And, we, you know, we've been to the School of Hard Knocks of not monitoring our uh, overhead irrigation and know that it has to be, you have to keep an eye on it. But, yeah, it's no big deal to have that hooked up to an automated system. So, Mike, with that, we're going to stop here, take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Mike Brownback from Spiral Path Farm. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company. Vermont Compost potting soils are a really special product. I use Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and a potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew some great transplants with it. And I mean, really great transplants year after year. And we save time, money, and management hassles compared to mixing on our own. At a time in the organic movement, when we're seeing more and more companies jumping on that organic bandwagon. Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making a great potting soil. One of the things I've always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent product year after year after year. And it's something that's subject to as many variables as market farming. It's nice to have something that you can count on. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is also supported by Small Farm Central, providers of Member Assembler CSA management software. Member Assembler makes it easy for CSA members to sign up and for you to manage the process, all in a flexible, easy to customize format. And once you have your members signed up, Member Assembler gives you better ways to get your CSA information to your staff, including customizable pickup lists, box building tools, and calculated harvest lists. It also makes it easy for CSA members to update their shares, request vacation holds, and it provides a platform for segmented 
and scheduled email messaging. Plus, Member Assembler's auto rollover tool has been shown to increase retention by 6 to 7% all on its own, a feature that can be worth hundreds of dollars per member in lifetime value. Member Assembler helps you spend less time in the office and more time doing what you do best, farming. Smallfarmcentral.com. All right, and we're back with Mike Brownback from Spiral Path Farm near the town of Loisville, Pennsylvania. And Mike, I know you you do a lot of salad greens on your farm. Is that is that something that you guys are selling to Wegmans? Uh, yeah, and it's it's interesting. Our whole salad green uh, uh, our whole salad green deal has been really a work in progress and has evolved over the years. It's funny when we first started. Uh, Deciding that we wanted to grow organic, I had uh, our, our gardens, and uh, our gardens had always been been organic. And we decided to get let's get our gardens certified. You know that way we're used to running through the system, seeing what it's like to get certified. The rest of the farm we had already made the commitment, and it was in transition, and it wasn't that hard because we hadn't sprayed our hay ground, so it was fairly fairly uh, pain free to really uh, to to be. Uh, become certified organic, especially because our hearts were totally committed to doing it. But that being said, that first season I spent, I remember saying, I've got to learn how to grow lettuce. So I got, I bought some ingredients, you know, at a box store of this, you know, peat and perlite and endeavor to make potting soil. I bought uh, some transplants from, uh, fella out of silver seed uh out down in bivalve maryland jay martin and we started growing a little bit of lettuce and uh we quickly saw that growing uh head lettuce you always have heads that just they're just not marketable you know and uh i i had a local chef uh, the late Alan Hetrick was a fantastic person and just someone that supported us in, in doing this uh, market gardening. And uh, he suggested, hey, why don't you make some salads and we'll buy them. And we had our little uh, our little home spinner. And I mean, you know, you wash your lettuce greens and you hand spin it for that for yourself. And I used to get that thing and spin up enough to make uh, to make his, his restaurant enough salad. And that was the start. And we were fortunate enough to go down. I had a, a, a new acquaintance that worked for Fertrell that took me down to uh, Silver, Seed Farm, uh, Silver Seed Greenhouses down in Bivalve, Maryland. And Jay Martin was down there. And this is, uh, I think, probably you know in the early 90s. And he was growing a really nice salad mix. And he was actually spin drying it in a in a in a washing machine, you know, back in them days everybody did what they could. And I said I said, Hey Jay, uh would you tell me your ingredients in your salad mix and I'd be glad to pay for it. And he looked at me and he said he said, Mike, I don't want any money. He said, If I can't give it away, I don't own it. And you know that's really is the the attitude that I love. I love that old that old hippie attitude. You know that we've all shared back in the day. And anyway, you know it was basically the uh, the mescaline mix. You know with the tatsoi, the mizuna, the uh, the the red mustards, and uh, the different lettuce blends. 
So we were growing something similar to that, and we started marketing to uh, Tuscarora Organic Growers. And, uh, you know, in Tuscarora Organic Growers, they had a grower's chart. So so you, not every grower could raise cucumbers. You would get on the chart for cucumbers. And, you know, I was a new farmer, and I wanted to get on the chart, and I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, boy, there's no room for me. And I, and I thought, well, I'll grow salad mix. Well, I, I ended up having the uh, top selling item like right off the bat without <laughs> even just, just by dumb luck, you know, I've, uh, I, it's better to be lucky than good. And, uh, so we, but we were growing that traditional salad for a number of years. We were seeding, uh, we were seeding with an earthway seeder, seeding the lettuce blends. We were seeding the uh, mustard blends, covering it with covers. And I would say we were doing that up until the uh, early 2000s. We were actually selling the Whole Foods. They were actually the first company that wanted us to get food safety certified if we were going to sell them salad mix. And, uh, you know, my wife and I looked at ourselves and we said, geez, do we want to stay in the salad business? And at the time, it was still a very viable component of our operation. And we said, yes, we do want to stay in the salad business. So we did get the third-party food safety certified. And looking back, thank God we did because it really prepared us for – to not have issues. And there was an issue that came up with Tuscarora Organic Growers uh, way back. Someone, uh, there was a salmonella issue, and of course they first, whenever there was problems back in them days, they want to go to the organic grower. It's gotta be the organic guy, right? I don't think that's changed one bit, Mike. I don't think that's changed either. So, but the beauty of it was from, from the work that I had to do on food safety, I had to send a sample out. I already had a sample. And I was like, not this boy. And it ended up it was in some seafood product or whatever it was. And I might be wrong with the term salmonella, but uh, I'm just using this as an introduction to the salad business so people can see how it's changed. But but what really had happened in the salad business from when, I, from when Jay Martin gave me the ingredients to make a mescaline mix in the early 2000s, is the price of a three-pound box of salad went from like eighteen to twenty dollars, down to about eight fifty to ten dollars wholesale. So it was it was a race to the bottom, and the Californians were they were leading the charge that's and winning right. the race. That's right. And in those days, uh, TKO Todd Coons was uh, he was the big salad magnet, and actually Earth Farm was pretty pretty minor. Uh, my wife and I went out to the Eco Conference back uh, sometime around '95 or '96, and they did workshops. and Todd Coons did did one one on salad, and so did uh, Drew and Myra Goodman of Earthbound. So that's the kind of the days as they were. So fast forward to today, or within the last six or seven years. Uh, We've totally uh, changed our approach to salads, and we focused more on lettuces because we don't have to fight with the flea beetle. And also, uh, Johnny's uh, started selling uh, seed that's produced by Reich Schwann, I believe, uh, what they're calling their Salanova, or what in the industry is called multi-leaf. So what that's done for us is allowed us to grow our salad mix actually as transplants. So we'll seed, and the seed is quite expensive, I know, but we'll seed the blend and we'll seed all eight varieties and we'll, we'll blend the seed so it's already blended before we seed it. 
So we'll seed blended seed into trays that are two hundreds. And at current prices, I mean, you you might have four to five dollars just in one two hundred cell flat, but that's life. The trade-off for us is the positive part of that is that we have we can control our production really well. We can grow a transplant. We can get it uh, in the ground. We put it typically on different colors of plastic. Depending on the time of the year, if we start out early in spring, we might put green plastic and put a cover on top of it. Then we might go to black plastic with a cover. Then we'll go to white plastic with obviously with no cover. And what we can do is we can we can go through there. We we hand harvest that, and that's hand harvested. And uh, we take it down. We actually put a really nice salad washing uh, facility in quite some years ago, and it's more than paid for itself now with a with some renovations. But that's how we grow basically the lettuce type salads. Now we also have uh, four acres of high tunnels, and in these four acres of high tunnels, we grow uh, the mustards if we want to grow uh, like baby kale. Uh, if we want to grow baby arugula or spinach, or even uh, we'll grow a uh, a uh, romaine baby romaine blend, those crops in the high tunnels, we actually use what's called a frigo rock barrier uh, because we have stony soil. It'll go through. We can we have uh, 32 foot wide greenhouse. These are these are cold frames, and they're they're up to 600 feet long. So we can go through and create six beds per house, and then we'll seed that with a Sutton electric seeder, so it's all direct seeded. We'll overhead water that with uh, overhead uh, watering nozzles like you would typically use in a greenhouse, and then we'll actually harvest that mechanically with a hydraulic-driven, uh, a uh, an Ortomac, uh Italian harvester, that has a stainless steel bandsaw blade and a conveyor. So our, so really, there's two distinct components to how we grow salads. We do not blend the lettuce with the mustards and, and make a, a complete blend. And I'd say the main reason that we don't is that we can't guarantee that we'll have all the items for near as long as we'll have the lettuce blend. But it gives us, uh, it gives us a great... Uh, marketing component for our CSA, and we also uh, clamshell these same salads for uh, for Wegmans. And I just want to double check that I that I heard you right. You said four acres of high tunnels that you're growing those salad greens in. That is correct. We have we have nine we have nine tunnels, and they average about 500 feet long. They're 32. They they range from 32 by 620 down to 32 by 450, and yet it added it adds up to, to four acres. But we we decided I had been growing in greenhouses for a number of years, so I've done the Troy built rototiller in the in the high tunnel, the Troy built rototiller in the half acre greenhouse, and I've. You know, I'm, I'm I'm getting in my 60s, so I've been there, done it, and I realized this is this is the whole thing about labor. Any endeavor, the harder something is to do, 
the less likely it is to get done. It's just the way it is. When I saw that we could roll up gable ends and we could actually buy frames that could stand up to 30 inch snowfalls without, without heat, I, I said, this, is, this has got promise. Now I got cash flow because when you're in business, we have 40 some employees in the peak of the season. We have some employees that are year round. We have health benefits for the year round employees. We have cash flow needs. And I think every business does. Let's face it. You get your CSA money in, it all comes in at one time. You, <laughs> I don't think any CSA farmer would say, well, geez, I got a whole pot of gold at the end of the season. You blow it. It goes. You know, you don't blow it, but you know what I'm saying. It yeah. goes. Cash flow is the name of the game. You've got to have cash flow. And these high tunnels, we'll, we typically will seed the first week of February. So we're just getting geared up now. You know, we're making our potting soils. And incidentally, we have to make our potting soil at least a month ahead of time because it'll heat. It's so active, it'll actually heat up, and we have to turn it a couple times. But we want to get our houses ready. We have cover crops in some of these high tunnels. We want to get everything broke down and ready to go, and then we'll start in February. Why don't we go through the winter? Well, we we could go through the winter, but there just isn't enough light in our climate to really grow. You could stock, I call it stockpile, which is a grazer's term that they have all that all that grass out that they're not harvesting the back 40 and then they're letting their stock cattle go out there, you know, late in the season, which is basically, we, sometimes we might have a spinach house, which I think we do have a spinach house that we could harvest probably uh, early March. But to do that, you got to bring all your labor back in they're collecting unemployment, you know, at, at, for a couple months. There's, there's, there's issues, but for us, the secret is, is to, is to be scalable, that you can stretch your labor for as long a time as possible in a realistic manner. Now, I'm a produce farmer. By the end of the season, I'm ready for a break, and I, I like, you know, we run our CSA because we have these high tunnels. We can start our CSA about the third week in April, and we go to the week before Christmas. That's our cycle now because of these high tunnels. And you can say, well, geez, I want to be done my season sooner. God bless you. Be done your season sooner. But that cash flow, especially when you start getting employees, and then these employees, you know, nothing made me prouder that I had an employee. The first employee I had that bought a house, I just about had tears in my eyes. I mean, to have to be a little farmer and to, to grow a business and to have an employee, an employee, you're paying an employee enough that they're actually buying a house, having children, and you're providing health coverage. That is the American dream. And it's not just an American dream for that employee. It's an American dream for that employer. And I think we have to, we got to hold that. We got to make sure that we have a country that that's, that's the possibility. Well, and I think you really, I mean, you talk about it. I mean, that's, it's a core social justice issue, you know, for all of the, for all of the energy that's going on around that now in the sustainable agriculture movement. I mean, really social justice comes down to paying your people enough and giving them consistent work. I mean, those are the, I think the two most important things. Well, they, 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 they really are. And I, we've really struggled with the apprentice per, with apprenticeships. We've, we've, always paid our apprentices and one of the pitfalls of paying a, apprentices the same rate as your other workers is 
you expect a lot out of your apprentices and you expect maybe at the expense of what you could teach them. And it's a very delicate balance. And I do not know the, the answer to that, but I, but I know that, uh, that there's young people that need to learn. And I know that there's businesses that need employees. So, uh, you know, I, we're, we're working on it. So on the subject of employees, uh, again, leafing through your website, I noticed you have a lot of people who've been with you for a really long time. And of course, you've also got your kids back on the farm. What are you doing right, Mike? I think I think that my wife, Tara, and I, and Tara is really the human resource person. You know, I'm the person that really... I don't like people that much. I, I like animals. I like plants. I love the earth. You know, I really do not like managing people. But because I know my nature, I would rather err on the side of generosity. You know, it's funny. I, uh, there's a fellow by the name of Le- Leonard Cohen just passed away. Leonard Cohen was a musician. And, uh, you know, Leonard Cohen was a practicing Buddhist. And I read an excerpt. Uh, I forget who wrote, the, wrote this. Uh, I think the New Yorker did a big article on Leonard Cohen. And I, and I was fortunate enough to read it. And he made this comment. He, you know, and, and he was talking about when he was a monk. And he said, he said, yeah, he was a monk. He said, he despised everyone, but he was generous, and they believed him. <laughs> I just, you know, that resonates with me to some extent. I would rather err on the side of generosity, in spite of the fact of my weakness in dealing with my fellow man. So, for what it's worth, but my wife has been so fabulous at uh, human resources, and uh, we actually have always our our philosophy has been to pay to pay a fair rate and trust that, uh, you know, you'll get a return for that. My mother, bless her, uh, bless her. She's not living anymore, but she always taught me she's here, spread it around. It will come back. The more you hold on to it, you don't have anything to come back. I think that's really sound advice. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good follow-up question to that, Mike, but I think you just said it right there. I mean, in some ways that's, that's, I mean, you just wrapped up an employee employment philosophy that clearly works for you guys. How long have the kids been back on the farm? It's interesting. My son, Will, he was working as an engineer and he was on the corporate fast track. And then he met this, uh, he met the love of his life, which is a wonderful thing. And she was from Maine. So they got married and they moved up to Maine and he was a carpenter up there. He's a really good timber framer and carpenter. And then, uh, 2008 hit and Maine was really, you know, Maine's got this, uh, if you want to talk about disparity in income, you've got these really wealthy people that can afford very high end carpenters. And then you've got the ordinary people like us that, you know, either do it yourself or it doesn't get done. Well, we, we invited them down, uh, to go on vacation with us. We typically try to go to the keys. Uh, at that time we were going to the keys maybe a week or so or two in the winter. And, uh, they came down. He helped me put a uh, a hot water boiler in the basement to heat the house, uh, running on a wood stove, one of those gasification boilers. And uh, well, they left. You know, um, excuse me. We all went to to Florida. We went on vacation, and we all got along so wonderfully. 
you know how it is, the sons and the fathers, you know, you don't want, they're, <laughs> the father's always too stupid and the son's always pain in the neck. Well, they came back and they never left, you know, and my wife and I are looking at each other and we're all getting along so good as a family. And they didn't, they never left. And we're like, we're like, now what are we going to do? You know? And, uh, I guess my son will kind of explore in his roots and he basically just said he wanted to come back. And, uh, the same thing sort of happened with Lucas. He was, uh, working, uh, he was st- stayed in the area. He hadn't, uh, did not have a degree, a college degree, but he was working in the area and, you know, it's funny how, you know, the grass looks always greener on the other side, and it's good. You know, the Amish have that time they call running around, and running around, you're typically, you're 14, you're pretty much allowed to do what you want until you join the church. And uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom in allowing the children to uh, sort of seed their wild oats, you know, and, and you know, some of us don't, don't get past that, and some of us do, and... For us to have our children want to come back was just a was just a wonderful thing. But it's not like we sat down and had these uh, beautiful discussions and wrote everything down to minutia. It was pretty much uh, us being accepting and open, and then finding the way as we went along. Now we're far enough down the rabbit hole now that we actually do have documents. We actually have done you know real estate transfer and uh you know have uh, have uh worked that into the system and and I'm always interested when when kids come back to the farm are there are there structures or systems that you've put in place to make sure that the relationship continues to be good that's a, that is that is such a great question and and you know when you know earlier in our discussion uh Chris we talked about you know that we have a CSA and that we have this uh account with a uh, with a retailer with with the Wegmans family and basically what we've done is uh Luke, our son Lucas he oversees the CSA so he's taken the newsletter writing the making sure that we have the right items the constant uh the, the constant attention to that detail and that's his and then will is totally in charge of the wegman sales but he's also in charge he's also like operations as far as overseeing uh the running of the farm and the crops making sure the crops get i typically am looking at getting the crops in and he's typically looking at the harvest at the labor and the harvest I my preference is to deal less and less with labor and uh, let have that delegated in those two venues. Then we also have a packing shed manager that's been with us for a couple years, and uh, his he has to deal with everything coming out of the field as far as getting it packed. But then Lucas is in the packing shed with the uh, with the CSA component and you know making sure that's right. And when we're really really busy. Uh, he might be making sure, you know, getting the, getting some help and making sure, like, if we want to put some herbs in or something that's totally not uh, on the on the grand menu of the day, that we get that, you know, we get that accomplished. But we pack and deliver CSA. Uh, let me see here: Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, four days a week. So four or seven days, we're actually packing and shipping for our CSA. So it's almost full time. So really, just in, and in that process of of working together, just keeping the channels of communication open and 
And do you guys meet every morning to, to figure out the day's plan? Or is it a, a weekly sit down to see how things are going? We do a lot of, we do a lot of email and email works really well for us. We will have a meeting. We have a meeting at least uh, biweekly, but we, we do a lot of emailing. And I would say that those, you find out what works best with the personalities involved. Uh, my son, Will, and I both, we, we know everything, you know, so one can't tell the other anything. So if we do it in email, we can go back and forth with a fight, and there's never there, there's not really much emotion expended. <laughs> as, as long as as long as you make sure that you read that email in the right tone of voice in your head right <laughs> well, yeah or that or that are locked the cap locks on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, we it, i'm i'm kind of making a joke about it but it's you know the dynamics of family are they are what they are and you know to me the more i look at it with uh with with maturity what a blessing it is to have passion. I mean, that's, that's the motor running, baby. You want to have it. And the thing of it is, is to have your heart working and functioning to a degree that your passion is held in check by the wisdom of your heart. With that, Mike, it's time to turn to our lightning round. We're going to get a quick word from a sponsor and then we'll be right back. Okay, great. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And support for this lightning round is provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers. And with PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, slog splitters, snow throwers, even a utility trailer, and a new water transfer pump, you've got the tools that you need to get the jobs done across the farm and the homestead. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions. And I want to say so-called solutions for mowing and tilling before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, that BCS tackle jobs that we simply couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Plus, they're gear-driven for years of dependable service. Check out BCS America to see the full line of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. Okay, and we're back and we're ready for the lightning round. So, Mike, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Pencil. And what do you do with it? I I cipher, as Jethro would say on the on the Beverly Hillbillies. I calculate, I figure, I plan. Do you do your crop planning on paper, or is that something where you you turn back to the computer for that? We're 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 quickly moving towards the computer, but it's funny. I still have my notepad. I love. I I do better thinking with a pencil personally, but it's just it's just my age. What's your favorite crop to grow? Whatever's whatever's in the peak of season. I cannot pick a favorite. They're all great when they're in season. I love them when they're at their best. That sounds like my favorite Jimmy Buffett song. It's whichever one's playing, you know? There you go. Exactly. What are you going to be doing differently on the farm this year? Well, we're, we're tweaking what we're, here's what we're going to be doing differently, Chris. And, and my experience when Republicans come into power is that they, that they, that they lower taxes at the ex- at the expense of going in debt, and we're not going to invest as heavily in infrastructure this year because we have in the past, and sometimes it's because for, it's for tax avoidance, and we're gonna we're gonna actually uh, try to take profit this year because we think that Republicans, in their wisdom, are going to give tax breaks to business people, and and I'm saying that totally tongue in cheek. 
but I'm thinking I'm going to increase my philanthropic endeavors and uh, decrease my investment in infrastructure. And what was it back in 1978 that made you decide to become a farmer? Well, I actually decided to become a farmer probably about 1973. But what it was, was I was an unruly young man. I would take any drug that was offered to me. I would do anything. There was nothing. There was, I lived a Huck Finn life. And I thought college was for was for boneheads. Uh, I did go for a semester and fought with the professors. And when I stunk, sucked my hands in the soil and felt that earth, it was like I was totally cleansed and I realized I knew what I wanted to do. And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Oh man, that's what a question that is. That's a fantastic question, and I'm and I'm stalling in the lightning round. But I think I think if I could go back in time, I would say, dream bigger, and bigger bigger not being bigger not being more money, but but bigger being more fertile, more 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 possibility. The movement could go could come could have grown faster. All right, Mike. With that, thank you so much for being a guest on the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Hey, it was fun, Chris. I, I enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, I, I, you got me on uh, pretty much unplugged. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 104 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at Farmer to Farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Brownback. That's B-R-O-W-N-B-A-C-K. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Growing for Market, where you can get 20% off your subscription with the code podcast at checkout and by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk behind farming equipment and high quality garden tools in North America. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at Farmer to Farmer Also, I'd ask you to please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoyed the show or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmer to farmer slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world and every little bit helps. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmer to farmer podcast.com. And I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.